Well, today what we're going to do, um, so there's sort of two things I have to explain. What am I doing today, and uh, what am I doing the next couple months? Um, a lot of people, have, I think a lot of people have thought that I'm starting Samuel now, and that is not the case. I will be starting the, a series on the book of First and Second Samuel in September. In September we will do it. And I know some of you are like, my goodness, he did 72 sermons on Mark. How long is First and Second Samuel going to take? But it's not going to take nearly as long because it's narrative. Narrative is very different. Narrative is, you know, you, there's a long story that takes two chapters and you just explain the story. It's actually a lot, uh, in one sense, a lot easier than the complicated things that Jesus <laughs> occasionally says. So for the next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to turn to Second Peter um, and there's actually a portion that I've really wanted to touch on for a while now. Second um, Peter chapter 1, I, I wanted to do chapter, uh, verses 5 through 11. I wanted to do them badly. Um, and then when I started to work on it, what I realized is that you're right, it's very dangerous to just go grab verses out of the middle of a book and start preaching them. Um, because it's, if you just go to verse 5 down to 11, I'm going to read them here in a second, it's just do this, do that, do that, do this. Well, stop doing that, start doing this. And, and after about five minutes of that, everyone thinks, are we earning our salvation? Uh, and that's, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Um, so what we're going to do is, is we're going to back up and start in verse 3. So this week we're going to do verses 3 and 4. Next week we're going to do verses 5 through 11. So that's two weeks in Second Peter. Then what we're going to do is we're going to do a, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole summer, but then it's um, Ascension Day and Pentecost. So I'll do one sermon on the session of Jesus Christ. It's called his, his authority as the emperor of the universe. That's going to be fun. And then I'll do one on Pentecost and the forgotten God, um, I call it, because there is this third person, <laughs> the Trinity, that re- especially high-minded, reformed, conservative thinker types tend to forget the spirit. So before I begin, I'm actually going to read these verses just to give us, this is the second book of Peter, the second epistle of Peter. Uh, he's writing at the very end of his life. I'm going to start in verse 3 and read down to 11 just to give you an idea of where we're going the next two weeks. This is what it says. This is the word of the Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, let all be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will, be, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your disciple, that man very much like ourselves, Peter. We thank you for the apostle who, at the end of his life, 
uh, did not want to leave us bereft of the witness, his witness, his particular and very special witness. We thank you for his ministry and, and when he was here amongst us. We thank you for his ongoing ministry in our lives. And I pray, Lord God, that we would come to understand exactly what he was trying to teach his original readers, that we would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ better, that we would be more firmly, uh, uh, that he would become a more firm foundation for all of us, and that everything that we do would extend out of who we are. So as we look into the, your word today, may we see who we are in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, and amen. Now, what is your source of life? What is the source of your strength, the source of your joy and fruitfulness, obedience and hope? Is it your character? Is it your upbringing or education? Is it your uh, natural gifting and virtue? Is it your bank account or your job? Is it your marriage or the success of your children? What gives you life? What gives you hope? What, what gives you fulfillment? In the closing chapters of the Apostle Peter's life, he wrote a letter as a farewell address, knowing that his life was soon to, to end, as he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. He knows he's going to die. And before he dies, he wants to, one more time, explain the Christian faith to the church. The first chapter of his letter is a challenge to his readers to never stop growing in love, a challenge to grow up to maturity as images and imitators of the Lord Jesus. But Peter doesn't preach works righteousness. He wants his readers to know the only way to accept the challenge is to accept Christ. That's it. Do you want to accept the challenge of growing in Christ? Then you must first accept Christ. You can't have one without the other. The only way to grow up in Christ is to be rooted in Christ. In order for a Christian to know what they must do, they must know what God has done for them. It is, again, the only way. I, I cannot get up here and tell you what you ought to do until I explain very thoroughly what God has done to you and for you. God provides in Christ what God commands in his law. God's actions are the foundation for life and godliness. God is the source of life and godliness. Any other source is an idol. Any other source is false. If you have any other source for life and godliness than Jesus Christ, you have a serious problem. Now, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1-2 through 2, states that Peter is writing so that grace and peace be multiplied to you... I'm sorry that grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Multiply grace and peace. That's what he wants to do. He wants you to be rooted in the knowledge of the gospel. Turn your ear to the knowledge of the gospel. Turn your mind to the knowledge of the gospel so that you can bear fruit. That's what he wants. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. He wants you to grow in peace, which is a fruit of the Spirit. He wants you to grow in grace, which is unmerited favor. Neither of those two things can you generate on your own. To grow in the knowledge of Christ's life and ministry is to grow in Christ-likeness. That's how you do it. The more you know him, the more you know about him, right? And, and the more you have an orientation towards Jesus Christ, the more your life will fall in line with his life. Your will with his will. Divine power remakes men into divine beings. Now, the Eastern Church, our dear brothers from um, you know, Constantinople, they wear the, the. There's a lot of different Christians who wear funny hats, but these are the funny, the guys with the funny hats who bow down and worship images, icons, paintings. 
Um, there are brothers, there are Christians amongst the Eastern Church, but they have this doctrine called deification, um, which it's all about um, somehow men become, you know, beings, divine beings. Um, and we're not, I'm not going to get into that fully explaining that, um, because no one here is, I think, flirting with Eastern, <laughs> Eastern Christianity, thank God. If you are, please come see me. But, but um, what, this, this verse that Paul says is that it, you're going to be partakers of the divine essence. Now, essence is being. Now, that is, it's a very strange thing that he says, and people have misunderstood it for a long time. And we're going, to, we're going to talk about that. But the thing that we have to emphatically say, whenever there's a doctrine that's out there that's bad, what we tend to do is back away from it and downplay what it is, right? Like Mary is a great example. Mary, the mother of God, is an extraordinarily important character. We ought to talk about her more and focus on her more, but it's a little hard to do when they literally in South America, in Catholic churches, have Mary on a cross, right? So, you know, there's a little, con- we, we try to back away from that. And what we do is we back away too far. Now, I want to back away from the deification of man, but I want to state this. Divine power makes divine beings. Um, C.S. Lewis makes this point. If you, had, if you could see what the people sitting next to you are going to become, you would either cry out in horror or want to fall down and worship them. There's just, right? We're talking about unity with the Trinity. We're talking about eternal life. We're talking about sinlessness. What we're talking about is becoming, in some sense, divine beings. What I mean by that, either you guys need to call the CREC and have them come down here and investigate me, or hopefully you'll be greatly encouraged. Divine power makes men remakes men into divine beings. This is the triumphant indicative. Before we can look at how then we must live, the imperatives of verse five, the imperatives of verses five through eleven, we need to understand what God has done for us, is doing in us now, and will complete in us on the last day. Before we comprehend our part in the process of sanctification, we have to comprehend God's part in our justification. Before we get to ethics, we have to cover the gospel. What follows in verses 3 through 11 is a complete summary of the apostles' teaching. God's power and grace are the foundation for the call to a life of godliness that you must strive to live. It is hard, and it is work. Peter teaches against all human humanistic ethics that a glorious and a virtuous life is only possible because of the monergistic grace of God. Now, monergistic means that the grace of God is the only cause of your conversion. The opposite of monergistic is synergistic, meaning working together. Do we will or affect our own conversion? Right? This is a big debate amongst certain Christian camps. Do we participate in any way in our salvation? Besides providing the sin, no. Okay? It's monergistic. It happens to us. You are standing there on a road, right, and suddenly you are converted. I mentioned him a lot, C.S. Lewis, but he was a deist, but he got on the bus, and he was a deist, and he got off the bus three stops later, and he was a Christian. And that's literally how he explains his conversion. It just happened to him. Uh, my own conversion was uh, during a sermon on Jonah was very, he offhandedly mentioned Jonah. I sat down a deist, and I stood up from that a Christian. Uh, not everyone experiences it quite that starkly, but it is something that happens to us. You can literally get up and walk to the back to get coffee, and by the time you get back to your chair, God could make a non-Christian a Christian that quickly. It happens to us. There is nothing that we provide. There is no way that we help. This is what the, the word of the Lord says. James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The conversion of every Christian is something done to them, <laughs> generally against their will. Uh, the number of us that were dragged into heaven kicking and screaming, probably to a man and woman, all of us. Peter explains the ground of the Christian life is God's will and prior action on our behalf. Therefore, Christians must, must now diligently nourish what they have received. That's what this little series is about. We have to understand what it is that's been given to us, right? It's, if, if your neighbor came over and gave you a small tomato plant, how ought you to take care of it? If you wanted to actually grow up and bear fruit, what ought you to do? Before we get to that, we have to understand exactly what the neighbor has come over and given us. <laughs> God has come over and given us the seed of faith, the seed of belief, the seed of eternal life. He has done all the work. It is finished. He comes. He gives it to us. And that's what we have to understand before we get to the how do we raise it? How do we get it to produce? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Whew. That, see, this is why, this is why it's not going to take as long for First and Second Samuel. Right? There's very rarely a sentence like this one. Let me, let me read it again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now let's unpack this. God's divine power grants life and godliness the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The life and godliness that God grants us is the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is, is predicated on God's divine power. God's divine power is the source of all life and all godliness. When Peter says that life and godliness are the product of God's power, he does not have in mind some abstract general power. He's not talking about God just as the creator of heaven and earth who's just mighty. He's just real strong. That's not what he, it's not that generic. Throughout scripture, divine power is exerted in specific historical acts like the exodus of Israel from Egypt or the conquest of the promised land. But God's power is displayed most amazingly and effectively and permanently in the raising of Jesus from the dead, which destroyed the dominion and power of death and sin. This is what 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says. God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Okay, the power that he has is not just raw strength. It is this resurrection power. He came and he said, yes, this man that you murdered is who he said he is, and I will prove it by raising him. And that power, that power by which he raised Jesus is the power, that divine power through which he is granting you everything you need for life and godliness. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. The same power that raised him is the power by which we live. That is crucial for us to understand. We live by resurrection power. Right? If, 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 you, if, if we were a car and you went and looked at what the gas was in the gas tank, it's the power, the resurrection power of God. That is what drives the car down the road. That is what gives the car momentum. That is what gets the car moving. That is the power in the car is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter himself points to the resurrection as a display of God's power over death. For the apostles, the exalted Christ is the power of God, and the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You do not have the strength in yourself to believe the gospel. You do not have the power to comprehend it. You do not have the power to live it out. He says, follow me on the way of the cross, and it's his resurrection power that, that is the gas in the gas tank that gets the car down the road. God's divine power raised Jesus from the dead. This is why he grants to us life and godliness. We're going to see the connection here. Jesus is our life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That resurrection power that made him alive is what's making us alive. Jesus is also our godliness. This is one of the most wonderfully bizarre verses in the whole Bible. It's 1 Timothy 3.16. Now think about this. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. I thought godliness was about holiness and ethics. I thought godliness was about our conduct and our behavior. I thought godliness was about our orthopraxy, living the right kind of life. But this says that our godliness is him, Jesus. He's our godliness. Our godliness is the life, death, and ministry of Jesus Christ. His incarnation, his resurrection, his ascension, his glorification. That's what you're becoming a participant in. So when you say, why are you you such a wise and godly person? Jesus is the Sunday school answer that you ought to give. Right? Don't shy away from it. It is that simple. Man, right? I say to my son, you are way more mature than you were last week. And he ought to say... Thank you, Jesus. Right, son? It's what he did do. That's why I'm using it as an example. When, when we conform to the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, when we become godlier, when we become more patient, when we, when we grow in sanctification, it's the godliness that we are experiencing is him. God provides everything we need. The Spirit intercedes in our prayers for us. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. In Christ, we live and move and have our being. Fundamentally, Jesus isn't just the starting point. Jesus is the starting point of the Christian life, and and he is the end of the Christian life, and he is the middle of the Christian life. Because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, and because you are in Christ Jesus, you are righteous, you are redeemed, and you are sanctified. So boast not in yourself, but in God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 through 31. And because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, what I have, ex- you know, have you ever experienced this? Someone does something godly or someone does something well. Someone deserves a compliment. And you tell them, man, that was a really good decision that you made. That was a really wise thing that you did. And aren't we a little embarrassed when they give the credit to Jesus? I don't know about you, but recently this happened where I was like, man, what? Like, it's almost uncomfortable that he can't take the compliment. Why is he giving all the credit to Jesus? 
And that, that thought quickly turned in my mind to why am I uncomfortable by the fact that he keeps giving all the credit to Jesus? Right? Isn't there this sort of hyper-spiritualism about people that talk that way? Man, the weather's great, isn't it? Yeah, Jesus really, he's really blessing us right now. Right? Just, why is it that we are so slow to boast in him? Why is it that we're so reluctant to do so? Why is it that it's so embarrassing when people continually do it? I know that I'm not the only one that has experienced this, but you're like, man, dude, it's just the weather. <laughs> I know your wife helped you make that decision, so you could give some credit to her. But what we so easily lose is that the reason for everything is Jesus. If you do anything well, it's because you have nothing to boast in. Nothing. Except him. He is the boast. And, and we do sound like weird, <laughs> spiritualist, you know, mountain people. We just sound like hillbillies, like fundies, right? And nobody wants to sound like a fundamentalist, right? But we should put the fun in fundamentalism. <laughs> we should do it with a smile. Yeah, Jesus is amazing. Well, I was just telling you, your haircut looks really nice. Yes, Jesus is amazing. This revelation of God's divine power is a call to God's own glory and virtue. God is known as the one who calls in various text, texts throughout the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's particular inward call to the elect is the effectual calling, it's called which stands in contrast to God's general call. He does make a general call. I'm here right now making the general call, preaching the gospel out loud. But there is another call that has come into all of our lives, into the secret heart, and that is God's particular call to the elect, calling them out of the world into his kingdom. God's divine power, his resurrection power, is a call to us. And, and, and when Jesus was, right, when Lazarus was in the tomb, and Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus came out. When Jesus was in the tomb and God said, Jesus, come out, Jesus came out. When God speaks, when he calls, people cannot do anything but respond. That's why it's monergistic. There's no resisting it. There is this general call. People can ignore me as the day is long. Trust me, they do. Amen. But there is a call that comes into our hearts by God that cannot be ignored. The effectual calling is, the, is part of the, the process by which we become Believers, Romans chapter 8, verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those who he justified, he glorified. One example of this effectual word of God is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. God said, let there be light, and light appeared. Peter's thought here is similar to that of Paul in, chapter, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and this is what he says. Unbelievers have been blinded that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Despite the differences in the images, both Peter and Paul tell us that it is the glory of Christ that gives us new life as it shines upon us, and both passages are speaking of knowledge. Peter sees the Christian life as a matter of recreation. God's spirit hovered over the abyss, and out of nothing, God's voice called forth light, and the light into being. Now think about that. There's nothing but God. And God says light, and there's light. 
And that same power, creational power, is the power, the resurrection power, that he speaks into your heart. And he says, let there be light, and there's light. He does the work in, in the inner man. He shines the light on the heart. He is the one that goes where nobody else can go, go and works where nobody else can work. I can't do anything to your heart except stop it. Eric could probably revive you. He can do something for your physical heart, right? There is nothing that we can do for the heart and in conversion. Nothing. Right? This is what we covered in our Mark series. There is no... Um, <laughs> that's a funny face my wife just gave me. Sorry. Uh, there is nothing outside of us. Right? You can't see a miracle. You can't... Right? All those people see the miracles of Jesus and they don't come any closer to believing. He has to go where no one else can go and do the work that only he can do. And when he does, it's, recre- it's the recreational power. He says, let there be light and there is a new creature. He is doing it. The church must not conclude that godliness comes from their own inherent abilities since the gifts given to believers are rooted in the knowledge of Christ. Right? How do we come to believe? We come to believe by hearing the gospel. Faith comes through hearing the words of Jesus Christ. So we're sitting there passively. The words go into our ears. They go down into the secret man. And they work where no one else can work, doing the work that no one else can do. So many of us are distracted by the fact that we want to sanctify people. We want to be the iron that sharpens them into a sharp point. And, and I don't know how many of you guys struggle with this, right? But, but generally in our lives, most of us take on upon ourselves some sort of Trinitarian heresy. We want to be the authority. We want to be the dad, right? We want to be the, the savior of the world. So some of us become doormats. Some of us obsess about being the holy. We want to change people. We want to be the, that force that... I'm going to say the right thing that's going to change that person's mind on Facebook. Right? I'm going, to, I'm going to proclaim a word that's going to be so wise and so logical and so powerful that that person is going to change just like that. And that doesn't work ever. That never works. Only God does that kind of work. You can make arguments and over a period of time convince someone of something, but it's God that goes into the secret heart and in an instant changes it. The church... And the people in the church are confused about exactly what their role in the sanctification process is. You, you are an instrument to change people, but it's generally because they, God wants them to grow in patience, and you're a person that they need more patience for, right? You're providing that service. <laughs> you're obnoxious, and, and you do more work. I love all of you, but you do more for the work of God being obnoxious than you, than you think you do as, as this logical power at work in people's lives. I don't know how many times, when, you know, this is amazing, and this is why it's so revelatory. Think about your own life. There are times where I think of people, and I don't, and, and what God wants me to do is pray for them. But what I end up doing is text them. Right? I want to see how they're doing. I want to talk to them. But, but what he wants me to do is pray for them because he's the one who wants to change them. And part of what, what we don't understand here is, is the, it's the power of God that changes people. Do you need your husband to change? Do you need your, spouse, your wife to change, your children to change? Do we need the J. Institute to change? Well, we could put on AR-15s and head to the Capitol building. There, that is one form of getting things to change. And there is a time and a place for that. But right now... What we can do is get on our knees and go to the only one who can go, right? He's, he, God is the one who can go where we cannot see and do the work that we cannot do. 
And that is our power. And that, why does the church in this particular time feel so powerless? It's because we don't know what our real power is. And it's not us, it's God. God is the power that we have because he listens to us, his children. Now, don't get me wrong. I could do a whole thing on taking AR-15 to the Capitol and making some change, but that's a sermon for another day. And that is like far down the road. What we do not think of, what we do not understand is the resurrection power that is at work in us and that is at our disposal. Glory is a word that describes Jesus' divine character, a character of goodness and love, which was most clearly demonstrated in the Incarnation. John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? This is what we are attaining. This is what we are called to, glory and excellence. And the glory isn't some generic glory. It's not just, oh, we put on a bright, shiny robe, and it's all and it reflects well with the light, and we look like angelic beings. The glory is Jesus. Jesus is the glory. John chapter 17, verses 3 through 4, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. God's glory and goodness were also seen in his graciously calling people to himself as he carried out the will of the Father to save God's people. Jesus is the excellence. Jesus is the glory. Jesus is the calling. That's it. Jesus. Eternal life is knowledge, is knowing Jesus. Knowledge granted and, and not attained. You did not attain this knowledge. It was given to you. And it is effectual. This is what we read. The, the knowledge that we're given, because it's God's knowledge, is not static. He does not give this knowledge and it just sits in our mind like a recipe, right? Does the recipe in your mind do anything? Does the recipe for bread in your, that you carry around in your memory make bread? No. But the not, right? If medical school knowledge, I'm looking at Eric right now. If, if you think of anything, any knowledge that you have, just having the knowledge in your mind doesn't actually do anything to you. You've got to do something with the knowledge. The knowledge of Jesus Christ is the only knowledge that is doing something to you simply by having it. And the more of it you have, the more of it that can be working on you when you're just sitting there passively staring out the window. This is the knowledge that once you put it inside of you, it continues to work long after you've left it. That's partially why reading scripture is so important. You read it and you're like, man, I don't really, I don't really understand this story from Joshua. What's going on here? But how often does that happen where you read a story like that and then later on there's a connection? You read some later story, and you're like, oh, that's, that's what they were. Oh. Or suddenly, this happened the other day. Uh, one of my children had a word of wisdom for me. And they're like, yeah, I didn't understand what that meant, but this sounds like what you're talking about. And I was like, see, that knowledge is just there working on you, son. You didn't understand it then. You understand it now. And I, what did I do? I was a fool, and boom. Right? I'm just actively working in your life to make you more like God. It's not me doing it to you. It's God using the tools around you. It's God using the knowledge in our minds. God's divine power grants us precious and very great promises. That would, that's what Peter goes on to say. Uh, I'm sorry. I have to read the verse. Okay, this knowledge that is granted to us. It's not attained, it's given. And this, this is, it's effective. It actually does something while it's sitting there. And that's what Peter goes on to say in verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This is, the, this is the knowledge that's working on you. By which, that knowledge, by which that knowledge, 
He has granted to us his very precious and great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. God's divine power grants us precious and very great promises. That knowledge that we attain is full of promise. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's why Paul's serving. He's serving so that we might have knowledge. That knowledge which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Divine power has been exerted in the resurrection of Jesus to fulfill God's promises to us. The purpose of God's action was to make us partakers of the divine nature and to ensure our glorious entrance into his kingdom. A promise is a declaration or assurance that one will do a particular thing or that a particular thing will happen. That's what a promise is. Now, how many of us make promises that never, ever come to fruition? Right? Sometimes when we're dealing with our our spouses, our kids, uh, we have failed in the past and to really make up for it now, we're going to double down on our failure by promising something we're never going to do. I don't know how many times I've led people down and be like, no, no, I promise this time I'm going to do it. And all I'm doing is just making the sin worse. But when we promise things, right, us making the promise doesn't fulfill the promise. We make a promise and we still have to go out and actually do it. But God's word is declarative and it's a, right, it does things. He says, let there be light and there's light. When he makes a promise, the promise is going to happen. He set, him making the promise has set everything in motion to fulfill the promise. Example of biblical promises are the proto-evangelum from Genesis 3.15. God said, a son will come to destroy Satan. God promises Israel, when you have brought the people from Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Well, who brought about the son of promise that saves us from Satan? Who brought about the, exi- or the, the um, escape from Egypt? I will be with you, God says. They that mourn shall be comforted. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us our sins. These are just a few promises in the Bible. And by making these promises, God sets in motion everything that that needs to happen in order to fulfill the promise. His word does not come back to him void. Now, the Apostle Paul says that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. So not only is Jesus our life, not only is Jesus... Our godliness. Not only is Jesus that, that power that's at work in us, the resurrection power of Jesus, the promises that have been made to us are fulfilled in Jesus. So not only is everything that's been done for us in Jesus, everything that is happening to us in Jesus is in Jesus, and everything that we're looking forward to in the future is in Jesus. All of the promises that God has made find their yes and, and amen in Jesus Christ. And God's promises have been given to us so that through them we may participate in the divine nature. God's divine power makes us partakers of his divine essence. Peter's thought has to do with uh, with moral transformation and not divinization or becoming divine men, as sometimes been argued. You're not going to magically become retroactively a god. This is why the idea of deification is wrong. You're not going to suddenly be able to live in eternity past. There is nothing, nothing that God can do to make you completely and utterly 
like himself. He can't do it, nor should he, right? You're not suddenly going to be like, right, get access and go back in time and be like, oh, this is what happened in eternity past. This is amazing. I'm, I'm God now. But, but what do you call a, a being that cannot sin that lives forever? Well, in one sense, that's a divine being. Now, the idea between divine beings and the Trinitarian God, this is something that is a little confusing to us because we're not used to talking about this, right? Angels are created, but they're called divine beings. So nobody, well, I mean, we call them no gods. We call them small gods, right? Behind Moloch is a fallen angel. Behind Allah is a fallen angel. May he be cursed forever. <clears throat> Behind these no gods are these fallen angels. They're divine beings. They're the sons of God. But we know that all angels are created. Well, we're created, and we too are going to become div- divine beings, but a different kind of divine being. A different kind of divine being from the Trinitarian God, a different kind of divine being from angels. But what we have to understand is that we will become divine beings. What, the, what has begun in us will see us through, through the process, all the way to glorification, and you will wake up in a place and a time that really will exist in which you will no longer sin, in which no sin can touch you, in which you will live forever, in which for 10,000 years you will go on, right, just to get started for 10,000 years, singing the praises of Jesus Christ. You are going to become that being. Okay, there is, there, there is a lot of weirdness here, but not the kind of weirdness that the Eastern Church, God bless them, has made out of this. Right? We're not Mormons. You don't get to become a god. You don't get to become the Jesus of some other planet, which is actually what they teach. You don't get to earn your way into deification in that sense where now you're worshipped as a god on some far distant planet. You are taken up into the heavenly host, into the divine council. You're taken up into, into the household of God, and in that house you will live forever unblemished by sin. This is a moral thing that Peter is talking about. That, this, this is what this whole section is about. In, in verse 3, there is a word there, excellence. In verse 3, in Second Peter, there, in chapter 1, there's a, a word there that's excellence. The word ought to be virtue. Because that word is used again in verse 5. Later on, when we're told to add to our faith virtue, that word virtue is the same as the excellence that was talked about earlier. So this excellence is given to us, and then... To this, right, this is what we're supposed to add to the faith that we have. We're supposed to take this excellence that God gives us and add it to our faith and expand upon it. That's the whole bearing fruit. That's what we're going to talk about next week. The partaking of divine essence isn't necessarily about what is going to happen to us at the end. It's about what happens to us in the here and now. You become a partaker in the divine essence. You become excellent. You become virtuous. You become a person who can love. That is the point of all of this. Right? Again, people think <laughs> deification. Oh, this is talking about the world to come and when I get to be a god. Well, no, he's talking about now, right? He is love. He's talking about now when you can be love. That's what Peter is concerned with. Right? In the back of his mind is always the future. The po- apostles always have it in the back of their minds. But the, one of the things that we miss very easily is in the forefront of their minds is what we are doing here and now. And if we're going to understand that, we have to understand the gospel. The gospel that provides everything believers need to be remade in Christ's image. Just as we were born of the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven and have put on 
the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is what is told us in the scriptures. This is what is happening to us. Not is going to happen, but is happening. We are God's children now. In John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is, because the process goes, you go from rock to living flesh. And in living flesh, you go from living flesh then to eternal living flesh. It's a process. By the time you see him, your eyes will have been remade. God's divine power is the way of escape from the corruption of the world. This is why it's a moral problem that he's talking about. The thing that he is delivering us from is the corruption of the world by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Always in the back of their mind is the future. But Peter is concerned about right now and what you are and are not doing. And how, how does he want, his process for getting us back on track is telling us what has been done to us. Why do you go on sinning if Jesus died for your sins? Why do you go on in corruption if God has, is working in your life to deliver you from corruption? His divine power is the way of escape from the corruption of the world. God has given saving promises to his people so that they will become like God. They will become like God and are becoming like God because they have escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, I want to talk about this for a second, because, and, and this is the last point to be made from this text. We are always looking for the problem out there. But the corruption in the world comes from evil desires. We, right, we like to blame devils. We like to blame people. We like to blame circumstances. We like to blame the unbelievers, those idiots in power. We want to blame the fools who live next door. We want to bl blame the boss. We want to blame the wife. We want to blame the children. We want to blame everything that's outside of us. But what we are saved from, the thing that we need to understand is the evil desire in you is the corruption in the world. Do you want to do something about corruption in the world? Raise your hand if you want to do something about corruption in the world. This is interactive, people. If you want to do something about the corruption of the world, look to Jesus Christ to cleanse the evil desires in your own heart. This is what I'm talking like, The situation that we are in, there is a lot to be said. God wants us to look to him. He wants us to wrestle with him. There are people to wrestle with in this world. There's plenty of time to talk about that. But if we do not begin with this... It is not outside of us. What is going on in this world is because of the corruption in us, because of the evil desires in us. And the way, the way out of them, the way to renew those desires is what God has done on your behalf. You want to go out and you want to do something about the corruption of the world. And what we fail to realize is it's, it's what Jesus has done for the corruption in us. That is the gospel. That is why he's at work in us. Because he does. He does want a world without corruption. And he does it one person at a time. He does it through individuals. When you come and confess your sins, when you talk about your evil desires, when you know that you need his divine resurrection power because you have none, at that moment, he's renewing and cleansing you and he's getting rid of the corruption in the world. 
Get your eyes off of everyone else and look in. I don't think, honestly, that we run the risk of being morbidly introspective. We run the risk of never looking inside. We, the, the kind of people that we have become in modern America as Christians, we are constantly looking out the window instead of the mirror. Get your eyes on him. He is the one who's dealing with the corruption in the world by dealing with you. Romans chapter 10, verse 7. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We hear of Christ's life. We hear of his ministry. We hear of his atoning death and burial and resurrection. And this knowledge is powerfully working in us. This knowledge is going through the passive year down into the dead heart and saving the hero. This knowledge of God is not the fruit of human inquiry or speculation. The fruit of the spirit of divine initiative and intervention produces fruit in line with God's own godliness. He is doing it to you. Uncorrupted morals lead to uncorrupted flesh. Our sanctification becomes our glorification on the last day, and both are rooted in the justification in Christ alone. Nothing else justifies you. Nothing else is your source of godliness. Nothing else gives you life. You grow in patience and goodness and self-control, not for your own sake. See, this is what I'm saying. He's dealing with you to deal with the world. Do apple trees grow fruit for the sake of the apple tree? Does a pear tree grow pears because pear trees like to eat pears? No, the deer likes to eat the pears. The mice eat the pears. I eat the pears. Fruit that is produced on a tree is never for the tree. God is cleansing you and making you more like himself. And as he is doing that, as you are bearing the fruit of the spirit, you're becoming more pleasant for others. He's changing the world by changing you. We want to get on this program for changing the world and tear down things and burn things to the ground and let's shout and let's get angry and let's move and let's deal with that guy. Sit down, open your Bible, and look into it. Look into it and see Christ. And that knowledge is going to go to work on you. And you're going to realize I'm not as patient as he is. I'm not as gracious as he is. I'm not as compassionate. I'm not, I don't, I'm not as full of brotherly love as he is. You're going to see all the things you are not. And as he deals with you when he does that, he is changing this world. He is dealing with the corruption in this world. It's the only way. Right? Do, do we think the circumstances that we are in are outside of his control? Why are we worried about what the president is or isn't doing? That's God's problem. Right? Does anybody have Trump's number on their phone? Let's call him. Oh, you don't? I don't. Right? Does any, let's email Jay Inslee. Anybody know? It's not, not his, like, you know, office email. Like his personal email, the one his daughter uses. Anybody? Does anyone know how to get to the throne of heaven? Yes, thank you. Not killing yourself, no. Right? What, what king do we have access to? As much access as we want. You, you want to deal with the corruption in the world, deal with the, the evil desires in your own heart, and the only way to do that is Jesus Christ. That is what we have to understand before we start talking about what we do or don't do. Before we start talking about what we need to change. Right? It, 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 we have to focus on this. It's only through Jesus. He's your godliness. He's your life. He's the promises. He's the knowledge. He's the call. He's everything. And the more of him you have, the less of yourself you have, the better the world will be. And amen.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for our brother Peter and his ministry to us. We pray, God, that as we go from here, that we would get our eyes uh, off of one another and on ourselves, that we would get, um, we would stop staring out the window looking for someone to blame, but that we would look in the mirror. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for the knowledge of Christ, and may it continue to work and, and move in us and change us and uh, deal with the corruption in our own flesh so that through us you might make this a better and more beautiful and more godly world. And amen.